Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Putin is the aggressor. Putin chose this war. And now he and his country will bear the consequences. This was never about a genuine security concerns on their part. It was always about naked aggression, about Putin's desire for empire by any means necessary, by bullying Russia's neighbors through coercion and corruption, by changing borders by force, and ultimately by choosing a war without a cause. Hey, everybody. Welcome into another episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast. I am Mike Leon. And I'm Nick Severic. A special episode today for us. We will be discussing everything that's happening with the conflict with Russia and the Ukraine. Uh, we're going to take you inside as to what is happening at this point. The situation is really fluid, so it's tough to do in a podcast format. But we're going to take you inside where we are at this point, uh, inside what some world leaders have said about this. President Biden giving his State of the Union address last night. We'll play some clips from that. Nick and I are going to assess some of the media coverage around this. It's been pretty eye-opening from a couple news outlets. More on that in a bit. And then later on in the program, a special panel that's really going to help us break all of this down. We're going to have former uh, State Department spokesperson and advisor to Secretary Kerry. She's been on the program before. Fox News contributor in Marie Harf. She'll be back on with us. And history professor over at the Hackley School in New York, Jared Fishman, who's actually teaching a course real time uh, on the conflict that's going on and everything that's happened in Eastern Europe over the last uh, 60, 70 years. So the panel will be coming up later on the program. Nick, I say hello to you, man, because what we're living through right now is is pretty crazy, man. I I think a comparison I've been trying with friends uh, to make you know, obviously what happened 9-11 here on dom- domestically on this soil is, is not the same thing, not an invasion, but it felt like we were being attacked. Right. Um, you, you got to watch in the 90s, you know, what happened with Desert Storm and, and live television coverage, you know, almost every day showing, you know, different videos. But I think, you know, it's more powerful now because of social media, because of the technology of camera phones, drones, et cetera, et cetera. You're able to capture a lot of this stuff. So, I'm curious how you feel with with everything that's going on. I mean, this has been dominating the news cycle, unlike anything we've seen over the last 
few years. Uh, so give me some of your early impressions of everything that's going on. Yeah, you, you bring up two important historical uh, examples. Um, I'll bring another one up, though, which uh, I think about the onset of World War, of World War One. Um, you know, the, the conflict between Serbia and Austria begins with the assassination of a political figure, you know, the Archduke Ferdinand. Um, and essentially, from that moment, we start to immediately have a discussion of the right to invade a country because you've been wronged. And immediately that became a flashpoint because suddenly, basically, every country in Europe pretty much just ganged up. You know, like you were either on one side or the other. And my immediate reaction with what was going on in Russia invading Ukraine first was, where's China in all this? Because it seems that Putin had to have some backing. Someone signed off on this. While he obviously operates unto himself, this seemed like a move that there had to be some assurance from someone else. And the only other powerful nation in that area would be China. Conversely, you think about what happens in Ukraine you know, as a country that has broken away from the former Soviet Union and being embroiled in a conflict that this is not recent. You know, we're going to obviously talk about this with our guest today, but you know, this is something that dates back to 2013. You know, this hits me a little personally because back in 2013, uh, my you know, then fiance and now wife, Laura, of course, uh, had been working with a, a team of heart surgeons um, and actually in Kharkiv. Um, and she had left there just before the original um, conflict had began, you know, with, with the annexation of Crimea. And, you know, had she stayed maybe a week or so more, you know, her timetable for coming back to the States would have been totally up in the air, you know, with what was going on on the border between U- Ukraine and Russia. So that's I mean, that's back in 2013. So you fast forward to now and just basically we're having, um, you know, Putin just you know chooses now to, to strike. I mean, what's been funny, though, is, you know, what began as a couple of days of what feels like this may be the beginnings of World War Three, the reaction from the rest of Europe and the rest of the world has been somewhat surprising. Yeah. Well, and we're going to play some clips from some different world leaders. It's funny that you mentioned that, but let's take you right now as to where we are present moment. You're listening to this taping on a Thursday. Obviously, the eight days have passed so far uh, of conflict in the region. So let me give you some some numbers that I can pass along from a couple different confirmed news outlets. But Ukraine, and, and you're going to find in some of these numbers, Nick, that there's been so much misinformation, disinformation on both sides of this, really more from the Russian side and what they're doing with their media networks. But just some numbers are so starkly off. And a lot of news outlets are trying to get ahead of this and really give you full coverage. So it's tough to confirm some of these numbers. But Ukraine is claiming that almost 6,000 members of Russian forces have been killed. Uh, Multiple news outlets cannot confirm that. But that's what the Ukrainian government is asserting. Multiple news outlets, multiple news outlets, excuse me, also claim that over 2000 Ukrainian civilians have been killed. But by comparison, the U.N., as of this past Tuesday, March 1st, said only 136 people have died, civilians. So that number is starkly off. (laughs) Fighting is happening. Obviously, Nick just mentioned uh, Kharkiv uh, in the two big cities in Ukraine, Kiev and Kharkiv, as well in the southern region. Russia has taken control of Chernobyl. They have claimed to taking control of Kherson, which is on the southern coast, although the Ukrainian government is denying that claim. But then on the flip side, the mayor of Kherson himself is saying Russia has controlled the town. So go figure on that, right? A convoy of more than 5,000 Russian troops are about 30 to 40 miles outside of the city, refueling, waiting on more supplies and are potentially surrounding the capital city of Kiev. This is according to 
the, the mayor, uh, uh, Vitaly Klitschko, the Klitschko brothers, if you famously watch boxing, Vitaly and, and Vladimir are, are both of Ukrainian descent. Vitaly uh, is the mayor of Kiev. So a lot of Ukrainian figures have started to kind of take arms. Uh, unfortunately, you're seeing this and really defend their homeland. U.S., Germany, Portugal, Netherlands, Czech Republic have all sent military weapons, aid, humanitarian aid as well. And while Poland has helped take in refugees, speaking of the refugees, over 800,000 Ukrainians have fled some of the major cities to other European nations. Ukraine has applied for EU membership, which would actually help them get some more military relief in, in the form of soldiers, because if you attack one EU nation, you attack them all. The application is a potentially being fast-tracked, but uh, unfortunately, the normal process takes about three years to admit a nation. The last country to gain entry was Croatia in 2013, and they waited 10 years to become a member of EU. At the core of all this, people, if you're just tuning in and you don't really have uh, anything that you trust in terms of a summation of it, Putin wants to restore the old USSR. And the countries like Ukraine are once a part of the Soviet bloc. He, he wants that back. He does not want Ukraine to be a member of NATO or EU. This has been going on conflict-wise, as Nick just mentioned, for the past nine years with the annexation of Crimea. Funny enough, uh, Marie Harf was at you know, the State Department when that did happen. We're going to ask her about that. The ICC the, is investigating potential war crimes committed by Russia during this war. And in turn, I'm using this quote lightly when I wrote this out, peace talks. Okay, peace talks have taken place a few times on the Belarus border between Russia and Ukrainian officials. But as of this taping, still nothing has come of that. Before I get your takeaways on, on some of those stats, Nick, let's play some of, of the clips of some world leaders, specifically President Biden, giving his State of the Union this past week and hear from Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron, the, the president of France, on what they had to say about Putin's aggression. Six days ago, Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. Together with our allies, we're providing support to the Ukrainians in their fight for freedom. Military assistance, economic assistance, humanitarian assistance, we're giving more than a billion dollars of direct assistance to Ukraine and will continue to aid the Ukrainian people as they defend their country and help ease their suffering. The Department of Justice is assembling a dedicated task force to go after the crimes of the Russian oligarchs. We're joining with European allies to find and seize their yachts, their luxury apartments, their private jets. We're coming for you, ill-begotten gains. And tonight, I'm announcing that we will join our allies in closing off American airspace to all Russian flights, further isolating Russia and adding additional squeeze on their economy. Shortly after four o'clock this morning, I spoke to President Zelensky of Ukraine to offer the continued support of the UK. Because our worst fears have now come true and all our warnings have proved tragically accurate. President Putin of Russia has unleashed war in our European continent. He's attacked a friendly country without any provocation and without any credible excuse. By backing down on his word, by refusing a diplomatic uh, uh, choice other than uh, war, he hasn't just uh, wounded Ukraine. He has also undermined the sovereignty of Ukraine. He has decided 
to uh, strike peace and stability in Europe, and it is the worst strike that we have seen for decades. We anticipated this crisis together. We undertook a stringent dialogue alongside our allies and our European partners. We did everything to avoid this situation, this war, but it is here and we are ready. All right, so you heard there from, from obviously all the world leaders in this, and the U.S. is very steadfast and look, we're going to help as best as we can, but we're not sending in any troops. Uh, troop deployment could lead to escalation. Nick, I gave you all of those numbers about what's happening. What's something that stands out from, from the conflict, uh, specifically with all those numbers? You're hearing about civilian deaths. You're, you're hearing what Ukraine is claiming in terms of what they've taken away from Russia militarily, what they've, you know, how many soldiers they've killed. What are some things that kind of stand out there? You know, there's two important data points. Uh, one is that there's even the beginnings, of, I mean, that there's talks that have already happened. While not fruitful, it's indicative of a very important point that we we can't ignore. Um, it seems early on from the data you're sharing and everything we're seeing, all the indications from even Russian soldiers, those who have chosen not to engage, um, Putin overplayed his hand. Just that's that that seems to be the first read is that right. there is a sense that what he thought would be a unilateral effort and probably the most important sign that that he had mis been had misjudged this was the protest we saw in Moscow. You know, right outside the Kremlin on the streets, you have citizens in a in a country that we all perceive as being extremely dangerous and authoritarian and a place that you won't necessarily see public dissent. Russians, to their credit, took to the streets and said, this is no, that we're not, this is ridiculous. There's no reason for this. Why are we doing this? And right off the bat, it just tells you that the national support that I think Putin thought he had secured with this move was immediately under question. The fact that there's conversation in Belarus tells you that the Ukrainians were, were just grossly underestimated in terms of the force that they're putting forward. You mentioned the Klitschko brothers. Obviously, you and I are both sports fans. The analogy I think about there is in baseball. You know, those, you know, we baseball players that we had, such as Ted Williams, um, you know, Willie Mays, you've had players who participated in or not participate. They, they, they served <laughs> like you've you know, we've seen we've seen sports figures, you know, play that role. Joe Lewis being another one. Yep. And that's that's the other thing that comes to mind is that when you connect, you know, the heroes that we see you know, on the playing field and these are the same people who are willing to you know, make that ultimate sacrifice. You know, Pat Tillman, another person comes to mind. Um, that's also what comes to mind, too. I mean, Ukraine is not messing around. Every single able-bodied person is getting a gun in their hand, and they're prepared to, pr to protect that nation. And Putin, I don't think, assumed that was the case. I was, I was going to play a clip from, but I, I encourage people because I don't want to, I don't want to play it. But if you, if you follow the daily uh, a podcast from the New York Times, there's an episode about Ukraine, and there's a woman on a bus leaving the city. And she tells a story about the bus driver stopping the bus and saying, look, unfortunately, we need every able-bodied male, 18 to 60 years old. They can't leave the country. And, and there are stories of people crying, you know, families being separated and stuff like that. So it's heartbreaking. My, my quick takeaways before we get into the media coverage was uh, alarming at the disparity of hey, we've killed 6,000 Russian troops. And Russia's like, no, no, they haven't. And so the, the numbers are so far off, but the civilian death toll right now at 2,000, the, the strikes on uh, Kharkiv specifically that we saw earlier today that was being played across different multiple news outlets uh, and some of the buildings that have been hit, a college was hit. You know, that's where, you know, residents live, civilians live, people that are not engaged in this. And that is really, really heartbreaking. Uh, real quick, before we get into our panel, 
I wanted to play some of the media coverage because I want to shout out some some correspondents. Obviously, we had Amy McKinnon on the program from Foreign Policy. She's doing a fantastic job. She was just in Kiev recently returning back. Uh, she, you know, she texted me back to say that she was safe and back in the States. Um, I want to shout out Trey Yinkst at Fox News. He has done a fantastic job. This man, follow him on social, but he does a great job uh, keeping everybody informed on the Fox News side. On the CNN side, obviously, Clarissa Ward, Matthew Chance are doing a great job. Tim Mock over at NPR. But there have been a couple of reporters that have done a awful job in terms of language about the conflict itself uh, and Ukrainians fleeing and comparing this to other conflicts that have happened in the Middle East, uh, in other parts of Africa. Uh, take a listen to the way CBS News and an NBC News correspondent recently uh, uh, gave uh, their statements about what is going on in the region. Now with the Russians marching in, it's changed uh, the calculus entirely. Uh, tens of thousands of people have tried to uh, flee the city. There will be many more. People are hiding out in bomb shelters. But this isn't a place, with all due respect, um, you know, like Iraq or Afghanistan that has seen conflict raging for decades. You know, this is a relatively civilized, uh, relatively European, I have to choose those words carefully too, uh, city where you wouldn't expect that or hope that it's going to happen. So it's partly human nature, but they are not in denial. Just to put it bluntly, these are not refugees from Syria. These are refugees from uh, neighboring Ukraine. I mean, that quite frankly, is part of it. These are um, Christians, so white. So, Nick, um, you hear that, and, you know, we talked about this a few episodes ago about not playing that race card, but that language, that these people are white. What is that? What, only you could, you and I have been texting back and forth about this, um, to, to see uh, news organizations that are trusted giving those type of statements from their correspondents that are just not finding the words, they're fumbling their words, they're telling on themselves, you know, to quote the phrase about how they're covering conflicts that involve people of color versus uh, white Ukrainians, to quote uh, that NBC News correspondent. Um, what did you make of, of those comments besides the racial undertones that clearly uh, both of those correspondents may, may need an HR course or two in? It's it's just telling. This feels like PTI all of a sudden. It's like, what is your one word? And I say that, and I hear, expect to hear the bell ring. Um, yeah, it's very telling. I think we we can see ourselves often in people that we find a connection to. So when we talk about atrocity, we see that and say, well, these are people who are suffering. Um, and I get it. I mean, if you you can find sympathy wherever you want it. But you know, the first correspondent you played, what's particularly offensive there is the undertones of, well, in the Middle East, we expect this. You know, these people are dot, dot, dot. Right. And that's, you know, as a brown person, wildly inappropriate. Not just inappropriate, but it, it is very telling that when we're seeing white people being attacked, the perception is this shouldn't happen here. Human history, Western history, tells me that, you know, we have seen a slew of atrocity perpetuated by white people on white people. So this is, this is just weird to me that um, that suddenly we we dissociate Ukraine with the Middle East as though you know people in the Middle East somehow are warlike and deserving of of the crimes of, against humanity that happened to them. That's that it just it's it's very telling. Um, one's racial bias is showing up 
You mentioned the news organizations. It's partly the news organizations. I think it's just the correspondents that are, you know, for the first time seeing people that look like themselves and saying, wow, this is, I can't believe this is happening here. Like, wake up. Like, humans as a species are problematic. And it's certainly the case with white people as well. So, as is the case with brown people, um, to find sympathy in a cause and to dissociate yourself from the sufferings of others simply by the color of their skin to make assumptions that people of a darker skin color are more prone to living in play into the suffering these atrocities as though they're more deserving or it's more expected that it happens. Right is a conversation you should be having with HR and really with yourself and what you perceive how the world operates. Uh, You know, we we were talking about this off air and, you know, again, the media is, is trying in real time to really circulate information. The correspondents that I alluded to before across the outlets are doing a great job. Follow them on Twitter. Uh, You can see their hits across the news uh, landscape. Uh, But you kind of (laughs) the bad apples thing, when you get a couple that, really don't understand how to convey just facts and information. This is what we talk about with media literacy. Those were both of those people's opinions, right? And and the problem is there are journalists or correspondents that are covering this and their opinion got intertwined in that. A terrible opinion, by the way. I think we can all agree that, that, that there's racial undertones with this and there shouldn't be. And we've seen videos of, of African-American Ukrainians, I believe, or maybe just African-American people in general, Black people in general, trying to leave Ukraine and, and being held back uh, to let other white citizens uh, get out of there. Either way, I encourage you all to check out everything that's happening across Ukraine. There's different places. I've recommended Vox and Fox News with Trey Yanks, CNN as well, with Clarissa Ward and Matthew Chance, Tim Mock over at NPR, who's doing a great job seek out those journalists if you want to keep getting informed when we come back after the break our panel marie Harf, former state department spokesperson uh during the obama administration and a fox news contributor speaking of fox news and jared fishman the history professor over at the hackley school will both be joining us to help us break that all down right after the break today's episode of the can we please talk podcast is presented by usecardboardboxes.com Nick, a new sponsor to the show, usecardboardboxes.com. What are you using when whenever you, when you guys moved to Eastern Pennsylvania? How did you get boxes and pack everything up? Did you pay movers? Take me through that process. Yeah, we 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 did pay movers. Um, so we went. Through, well, I mean, again, we've done a couple of moves. So most recently to to Pennsylvania. Yeah, we had to go through that process. You know, get movers and they bring their own boxes. And yeah, it's not it's not the greatest thing. I gotta be honest. Um, so you know when you mentioned this organization like i started reading up on them it was fascinating folks first and foremost with use cardboard boxes on the website it's telling you more of the most important data points currently 5,461,100 trees saved because of the work of this organization um i'm blown away by it so i'm excited to use them and we have all kinds of stuff we're not moving anytime soon but i definitely need things to get boxed up and donate or just move around the house so i'm excited to use them Listen, I've used, I personally used usecardboardboxes.com. I got turned on to them by a friend. They're very easy to use. You go onto their website and you you can check out the kits, the boxes. They come with supplies. So I ordered like one of the, the early packages of just moving boxes, right? So they'll send you like, you know, either wardrobe moving boxes, uh, large moving boxes, medium moving boxes, lar- extra large ones, whatever sizes that you need for your house, your apartment, whatever it is, you go to usecardboardboxes.com and you're able to right away 
get cardboard boxes sent out to you the supplies like the packing tape uh the ability to to write on the boxes so that way the movers know what room this is going to go to if you go to our show note links right now uh all you got to see is you'll see a link for used cardboard boxes right in there and you click on that link and at checkout you're going to enter the promo code new customer all one word new customer at checkout you're going to get five percent off of that purchase head to use cardboardboxes.com today all right like we mentioned at the top our, our panel is joining us uh as always both both of these guests have been on the program before uh, she was a former State Department spokesperson and, and, and senior advisor to Secretary Kerry. Fox News contributor Marie Harf is back with us on the program, and he's a history professor over at the Hackley School in New York. Jared Fishman. Hello to both of you. Marie, Jared, how's everything? Doing well. Yeah. We're doing well under the circumstances. It's, yeah. it's, uh, the world feels like it's on fire. Um, yeah. But you know, hanging in there. That is correct. Um, I'm happy to be here, of course. Well, thank you for coming back on the program. Uh, I can think of no one better that kind of saw some of this up up close and personal when you were at the State Department. So let me start with you first, Marie. Um, obviously, you worked there uh, during the time when Russia annexed Crimea. Can you take us a little bit inside, you know, what's happening right now in the State Department? Because, you know, what we've seen, Nick and I were talking about this in the past segment, there's been so much misinformation, disinformation from the Russian side of this, but also Ukraine's making some claims of killing 6,000 soldiers. That can't be verified by news outlets. Can you just take us inside the process of what you went through in 2014, what the, what the scramble drill kind of looks like inside the State Department, and then what you make of the overall uh, conflict that's happening in, in the Russian invasion? Yes. Well, you know, I remember 2014 and 2015 very well. And I remember going to Kiev with Secretary Kerry. The Maidan was still burning. The tires still, you know, were on fire, basically. And and I remember also going to Sochi, Russia, with Secretary Kerry when he met with Vladimir Putin. And so, you know, we had there was a lot of diplomacy that we were working on in those days. And our goals at the time were, of course, to get a drawback of Russian forces. That's obviously what we wanted. We were not going to recognize the annexation of Crimea or the or the incursions into eastern Ukraine. But we really didn't want them to go further. And there were a lot of people involved in those talks at the time who felt like the sanctions that we did do, the steps that we did take, prevented them from, for example, trying to take Kyiv, which we thought was a real possibility in those years. And there are a lot of people who talk about Vladimir Putin that we negotiated with then and the Vladimir Putin of today. You know, when we were in, in dealing with Ukrainians, um, they were they had gone through so much with with their own uprising, with their own, you know, you know, trying to get towards the West and then being pulled back um, by by Russia and by the Russian cronies, you know, backed cronies in Ukraine. Ukraine is a very is, is different in many ways, right? Their their democracy has settled down a little bit, not entirely, of course. They're not a, by any means a perfect democracy, but a lot of people feel like we see a different Putin today. And I'm not an expert on Vladimir Putin, but um, you know, we assessed at the time that he was strategic, and I'm not going to armchair psychoanalyze him. But it feels today, looking from the outside, like he's a lot more detached from reality than even he was in 2015 and 20 and 2014. And, and, and the things that we are targeting now with sanctions hit at things he cares about, right? He deeply cares about um, 
a whole host of things, um, trivial and not trivial, right? He cares about Russian teams not being able to compete in FIFA games, right? And he also cares about the collapse of his economy. But it is unclear if he's getting any good information, any accurate information, and if he has an end game here. The last thing I'll say um, is that I have been really impressed with the way the current the conflict. They were basically declassifying intelligence in real time. They were putting out publicly what they thought Putin and the Russians were going to do. And and that didn't stop the invasion, but I think it had to have affected his calculus. And that's very rare. I worked at the CIA too. They don't like doing that, certainly not in real time. So I think that um, we'll talk more, I'm sure, about the current situation and how it's been going. I, I think it's a really scary one in a lot of ways, in part because that Putin we were dealing with in 2014 that made a calculation not to go further, that Putin seems to be gone. And that I think is scary for a lot of people. Yeah, just bringing this conversation into the classroom uh, for where you are as an instructor, trying to take students through an understanding of, of how we got to this point and building off of what Marie had mentioned a moment ago about, you know, this seems to be, this appears to be a different version of Vladimir Putin than who we who we globally experienced in 2014, 2013. What's your assessment of that? And just when you're addressing this with students, how do you put context to what we're seeing now, what we experienced globally back in 2013, 2014, and even prior to that with the fall of the Soviet Union? Yeah, thanks so much, Nick. It's a great question. Um, Look, I mean, I'll be really honest. Um, I do think that Vladimir Putin certainly is acting somewhat differently now, but this is not something that happened overnight. Um, I mean, if we think about, why don't we start with Vladimir Putin's speech that he gave right before the invasion? I mean, he more or less said that his goal is to reconstitute the Soviet Union and not in a communist sense, in the sense of power, right? So if we think about Vladimir Putin, let's just take a look, you know, as a history, as a history teacher, like I focus on the long-term, right? So, I mean, look, he came to power in the late nineties um, he attacked Georgia in 2008. He was fighting the Chechens. He did annex uh, the Crimea in 2014, which is which was a foreign policy goal of the Russian state, literally back in the 1700s. So, to me, a lot of this is not necessarily new. However, I think what is new is the fact that many people that I know, um, especially um, older folks in their 60s and 70s, who thought that they would never see a conventional war like we're seeing right now in the Ukraine, um, that is definitely something that is new and it's a very, very bold strategy on Putin's part. So in terms of dealing with these issues with students, I always come at it from the perspective of facts. Um, Just like I said last time I was on when we were talking about Israel and Palestine, what we've been trying to do um, at Hackley and lots of other schools as well, um, what we've been trying to do is kind of talk to the students about the fears that they have, uh, try to educate them about what we know about Russian foreign policy, what we know about Ukrainian foreign policy, what we know about the EU and NATO, uh, and what we know about our own goals here in the United States. So we've been really trying to focus on those points. Um, More specifically, um, we kind of, as a history department, kind of smelled this coming quite a while ago when Vladimir Putin started to move so many troops to the uh, three different invasion points that, you know, uh, Russian troops attacked the Ukraine from. You don't move, uh, you know, 150,000 troops to borders 
as, you know, a chess move. I mean, it, it was pretty obvious that he was going to invade. And it was pretty obvious that he was going to invade after the Olympics were over because obviously he doesn't want to upset the Chinese, right? And the other thing uh, is the weather, right? You know, again, any student of history knows, like, if you're going to invade any country in that region of the world, it's got to be uh, roughly now because, you know, if you wait a month, if you're into March, if you're into April, um, all of the mud is going to bog all those, you know, Russian vehicles down. So again, we just addressed all of these different, you know, concerns with the students. Um, we held a round table uh, about a month ago to kind of talk about the issues. And then me specifically, um, I have talked about, uh, you, know, the, you know, the invasion in my mainstream ninth grade classes, but the place that I've addressed it more than anything else is I do teach a specialized elective on war um, in which, you know, students will take this elective over the, over the course of really two years. And we study the development of warfare all the way from Frederick the Great um, in the 1700s all the way into the modern world. So in a very sort of sinister way, the students are seeing all of the things that we've talked about sort of come to fruition, um, which, again, you know, for them is pretty scary, you know, for young people to be experiencing something like this, even though America in America, we're so far away from the actual events. Yeah. Um, well, that's great to hear, by the way, Jared. Um, and, and listen, as somebody who's graduated with you, I, I trust you, that you're teaching our students right. Uh, Marie, I want to get into, you know, I have a few friends that are in Ukraine. I shared recently on social media an email exchange I had with a Ukrainian friend of mine because, you know, I work in the sports technology space. A lot of tech firms are in Ukraine. And he texted me, hey, you know, I can't really respond right now. Uh, Russia's invading us. I don't know if you know. And I was like, I know, Nick, you know, uh, good to see that he still had a sense of humor through all of that. But the big thing I've heard from a lot of Ukrainian friends of mine that have either lived in the, in the country or, you know, are, are, are here now in the U.S. is they're not getting help in the form of soldiers, right? Germany, Portugal, Netherlands, Czech Republic, before you hopped on, I was mentioning about some of the countries that have committed to sending weapons. Who's going to man some of those weapons is, is what I'm hearing from Ukrainian friends. As, as this situation continues to be fluid with, with respect to the conflict itself, tough to do it in this type of podcast format as, as the situation continues to evolve. But where do you see a, a drop dead point where there is an absolute need for some type of military combat troop you know, intervention from a neighboring country, somebody in EU country, the U.S. itself, where is that drop dead point as, as everything continues to escalate in the region? Well, I think that's one of the challenges with Ukraine. I mean, I would say the drop dead point for the U.S. is when a NATO country is threatened and when a NATO country is invaded. And we have an obligation to, to defend our NATO allies. I, I don't think that the world and certainly the United States has developed a good framework for how and when we intervene militarily in places we are not committed to through treaty alliances. And, you know, we can talk about a number of cases in history where that's been the case. But I, I think so. So I don't foresee the United States sending troops to Ukraine. And I think there's a real question about what are national interests are in Ukraine. And there are many, there are certainly many, but how you weigh those against the, the possibility that doing so would be so escalatory that Putin, who has a huge arsenal, including a nuclear arsenal, could retaliate in a way that really spun this, spun this e even worse than it already is. And so that's, that's sort of a cold thing to say, but, but 
and I don't mean to sound that way. Um, I, I want us to do everything we can to, to help Ukraine within those parameters. It doesn't help Ukraine to get all of Europe enveloped in, in a war because we've let it sort of spin out, out of control. And I think that, you know, going back to my time at the State Department, that was always one of the challenges because when 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 you you have a certain toolbox in diplomacy or in power, you know, economic tools, diplomatic tools, military tools, and and with a country like Ukraine that is not a treaty out, that is not a part of NATO, those tools are somewhat limited. Um, and the fact that Russia has so much power, particularly with energy resources in Europe, but other power as well, that also limits our tools, right? And so we don't have unlimited tools um, to, to take on Russian aggression. That's why I think what you've seen this week has been so extraordinary, just in the past, you know, five, six, seven days. Europeans countries around the world being willing to do things that two weeks ago they were not willing to do because the threat is so dire, willing to take steps that will cause them pain, sacrifice, um, that they were not willing to take two weeks ago. But but it is a strategic question about um, whether uh, whether the United States particularly, but sort of NATO countries more broadly, should be committing troops to a non-NATO country when that could escalate so quickly, so far. Um, and, and that's a big step that I quite frankly don't think that the United States will take right now. And I, I'm not sure it should, candidly. And people calling for things like no-fly zones, you know, armchair generals um, calling for no-fly zones or just shooting down, some, you know, shooting down some Russian planes or attacking the convoy. Like, uh, these things have a way of spiraling. And I think since 9-11, we have thought of war as something very different than this. We haven't thought of tanks and battalions. Um, and that's, I think, partly, I think maybe what Jared was getting at, like why this feels shocking right now, because, you know, we think of war very differently in the world today. Um, and this feels in many ways like a, a throwback to, to some of the things I know, I'm sure Jared has spent his career studying. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if, if you want me to jump in, um, Please, yeah. the, the, again, I, I don't want to sound inflammatory here, but the second that you have American troops firing at Russian troops, that's really, as Julius Caesar would say, like kind of like the die is cast. And I think I agree completely with Marie. Um, that is something that I would surmise the U.S. is going to try to avoid at all costs. And I think what's happening right now Look, the reason why a hundred modern Russian tanks and God only knows how many BMPs and uh, you know other mechanized troops have been destroyed is because of the fact that the western border of Ukraine is wide open right now. And um, as you said, Mike, at the beginning of uh, you know uh, when we first started talking, uh, we and European nations have been shipping in anti-tank missiles and specific missiles like javelins and things like that to knock out Russian aircraft. So that's really right now the best short-term solution to try in, in, in terms of trying to help the Ukrainians fight the Russians. And it is, you know, they've done exceedingly well at this point. Um, as much uh, damage as the Russians have done, you know, their forces have stalled outside of not all of the major towns and cities, but at least sort of Kiev and um, Kharkiv up in the uh, north. And here's the other thing to consider as well. You know, the, the thing is, it's so dangerous. And I've heard many people say this. So many people have labeled Vladimir Putin as crazy. It is so dangerous to label him as that. 
the Russian government has been prepared for this for a very long time. Yes, the economic sanctions, in my opinion, are going to have a long-term effect on the Russians. But as of right now, it's more of a long-term kind of thing. So as long as that Western border stays open, um, you know, we'll be able to kind of help the Ukrainians. The real question is, when will Putin close that border off? The tricky thing for the Russian army, Ukraine is a very big place. And as of right now, um, the Russians have probably 100,000 troops, maybe a bit more than that. They are not going to be able to hold the Ukraine with that many troops. Most military historians would, would argue that. So again, it, it's like Putin is kind of guiding this, right? So we know for a fact that he's reinforcing the troops that are there already. So it's just a matter of um, how much can the Russians logistically move their troops around the country because they've struggled with that. They've struggled with fueling their troops. They've struggled with supplying their troops. So it's really, in a lot of ways, a guessing game. And, and again, Marie, you, you used the word armchair, armchair general before. That is something we have to be careful about because ultimately all we can really do is take a look at the facts and make educated guesses. But if anything, Putin is very, very crafty. So, yeah. Marie, this brings up an interesting point. You had said, I think you were cut off just briefly, but you had talked about transparency on behalf of the White House, sharing information that normally we usually would keep uh, much more guarded about basically you know, speaking to what moves Putin is making and essentially in many ways forcing his hand. You know, Historically, we usually tend to keep that you know, far more top secret. When we consider that, and then there was a recent story about Russians not able having not having access to um, electronic payments through Apple, Google, and such, and basically paying out of cash, you know, for services such as uh, mass transportation or even trying to you know access Netflix and stuff like that. I bring up those two important data points to talk about the nature of conflict globally in the 21st century and you know our response at, at the white house but then also you know what basically europe and the rest of the world is immediately countered economically against russia with those two things in, in mind marie how, what does that speak to in terms of the way maybe our our global reaction is to conflict and how is that maybe different than what we may have seen back in 2013 or even previously yeah, there are some people on Twitter, which I try and stay off of, but Good idea. sometimes I lurk, um, who claim this is like the first conflict that's played out on social media, which is not true. They have seemed to miss Syria or Yemen, people countries. You can say or, it. right. Like suddenly they care because they're Europeans. Fine. Um, we can just all say that. Um, but so I, I do think that. Um, you asked someone mentioned misinformation and disinformation earlier. Look, I think that that we have seen one of the big challenges for people that have the jobs like I had is how you counter that. And I actually think the Ukrainians and, and I think, Mike, you mentioned like there's some weird numbers on both sides here. But I think that that what we may be seeing is that Putin and his top people have started believing their own propaganda. And, and, you know, there was they, one of the uh, Russian websites had a story written ready to go about how they had conquered Ukraine and they accidentally posted it early and then it got taken down. Um, you know, I think it is very dangerous when you start believing your own 
BS, right? And it kind of seems, you know, I, I, it's it's puzzling to me that they did not prepare the Russian military be beneath the generals and, and folks there for what was coming. And I'm not sure Putin actually knew what was coming. I'm not sure how good the information is that he's getting. But that's what's hard to counter, right? I, I think what's been fascinating is that the world... Um, is so clearly seeing what's happening. You know, Russian propaganda isn't working as well. You know, when we had the shoot down of, of MH17, when we had, you know, the little green men in the Donbass, like most people didn't believe it, but we didn't have a UN General Assembly vote where only five countries, you know, four other countries voted with Russia. So I think it's almost like the Russian propaganda has gone too far and that our, our, our government is calling it out and doing it in a way they hadn't before. We didn't do this in 2014 and 15. I think we thought that like what mattered if a bunch of people lied on Twitter. And then we all had the presidential election of 2016. We were like, oh, maybe it does matter what people say on Facebook. Maybe this propaganda effort is real. And this Russian, um, you know, in the Russian invasion and everything that's gone with it should be seen as part of a bigger policy, as Jared mentioned. But that policy includes what they did in 2016 here and they're meddling in our, you know, they, they are fighting an information war against the West. This is part of it. This is all part of the same grand strategy, I would argue, that Putin has been pursuing. And, and so I think that, you know, we have rallied the world. Um, I don't know how much, and maybe Jared knows more about the, what the Russian people themselves actually see of this, what they actually hear, what they actually know. I know two things. I know that when body bags start coming back of young Russians to their mothers, that will not be very good. Um, and, the, and that when Russians can't use Apple Pay, can't leave the country, can't fly on an airplane, that that will not be good. I also know that autocrats who are willing to put down their people uh, challenges violently tend to survive. And Putin is certainly one of them. So all these people who say, well, maybe this is the end of Putin. These guys tend to hang on. Look at Assad. Look at, I mean, the list is countless, right? So yeah. um, it's, it's, a, it's a tough time right now to be fighting this information war. You know, um, and I, I want to ask both of you this, because before you both hopped on in the previous segment, we, we, we shouted out a couple of reporters across the media sphere. You obviously know Nick and I are both journalism grads, and I started once upon a time in news. Nick, Nick did local radio as well. And we are big on shouting out the folks that are doing this the right way. Uh, I've mentioned Trey Yinks at Fox News, Tim Mack at NPR, obviously Clarissa Ward and, and Matthew Chance at CNN and, and all the great work they're doing. But there was a couple of reporters from CBS News and NBC News specifically that recently got entangled uh, words wise, losing uh, <laughs> the ability to, to uh, articulate uh, why this conflict was different and some equating it that we've never seen white people as refugees like this. So, right. And, and making this racial undertone uh, type of statement on television to their television networks. I wanted to ask both of you, Jared, I'll start with you first, because you're teaching kids right now, potentially about media literacy. You and I went to high school together. I don't remember our history teacher talking about media literacy and how to actually interpret a series of facts across articles. What are you what are you teaching students about this conflict? Because there's so much misinformation and disinformation out there available. And I just mentioned at the top of the program, the, the, the disparity in the numbers reported of civilian deaths, uh, Russian military troop deaths, so what are you teaching your class about media literacy? And then, Marie, I want to get to you about how to actually do that, because you are on the television docket. So but, Jared, I turn to you first. 
Yeah, sure. So um, I'm certainly not an expert in media literacy, but what I could make a connection to is the way in which I teach research skills. Because ultimately, when you're going online, whether you're reading Fox or CNN or Vox or Politico, what I try to teach my students overall is try to get articles and information from as many different places as possible, and then compare that information um, you know, in real time. Um, that to me uh, is is really one of the one of the best ways to kind of get a clear picture of things. Um, I also try to tell students because again, you know, in the world that we live in, um, we're so polarized, uh, especially in terms of the kinds of news that we watch. I actually do stress to the kids: go and find the thing that you are most opposed to and read those articles. You know, so if you despise Fox or despise CNN, try to go, uh, you know, you know, and and read what those reporters are saying. You know, that's. That's kind of, you know, how, uh, you know, I, uh, I personally sort of try to combat it. We also have some media classes here at school. That's, uh, those classes are actually taught by our department head. Um, and again, they, they do a lot of the kind of work that, that you're referring to. So that's, that's pretty much my kind of, my kind of take on it. Marie, to you, uh, because as somebody that was once at a pulpit controlling information, you've seen what happened with the Biden administration. I see John Kirby all the time up at the Pentagon. Uh, uh, giving different uh, uh, speeches and statements, Jen Psaki and everybody's trying to control the information of what the U.S. is doing, the intel that they're getting. And specifically, I thought about this because the Biden administration with the uh, with the uh, what happened in Afghanistan, the intel that they were getting about how fast Kabul would fall was way off or at least perceived to be way off. Whereas here they've been pretty spot on if you go back and trace the different intel and, and the warning signs that the Biden administration communication wise from the State Department on have all been on the same page about this is this is imminent. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. So what do you think about the, the way the communication system has been handled here, not only domestically, but what you're seeing internationally and the reporting from the outlets? Well, I totally agree about these reporters. I would I would put in there Jill Doherty. She was CNN's bureau chief a while ago, retired from CNN, it works at Georgetown now, and has been reporting like all day, all night from Moscow for CNN again. Um, these reporters have been amazing and I think do us such a service. Um, so I think that's that's extraordinary. I would also say, this may be the former CIA officer in me, I'm always very wary of the narrative that it was an intel failure because it's a very easy thing to say um, when you make a policy decision that doesn't go right. I'm not saying Afghanistan was or wasn't. I don't know. I don't have intelligence access anymore. But um, I think that's uh, when I was at the State Department podium, I was very aware of that fact that it's very easy to whisper to a reporter, well, the intel wasn't that good when maybe we just made a policy decision or we didn't plan enough or whatever. Um, but look, I will say on this conflict, there has been enormous cohesion and, and proactive uh, messaging coming from, from the administration. I cannot underscore how extraordinary it is that they are basically putting out intel in real time and that they are saying, this is what we're doing and this is why. And, you know, John Kirby, Ned Price, and Jen Psaki are all pros. They know what they're doing. But the other thing you have to do at the State Department, and this is a crucial, crucial, crucial point, is always leave room for diplomacy and always leave room for an off-ramp. We Putin needs, I don't know if I want to say off-ramp, that may not be the right word. Um, there needs to be a way out of this. And so you cannot do anything at that podium that limits those options unnecessarily, unless that's a tactic, right? This is, um, you have several audiences at the podium, 
obviously you put out information to the public, to the American people, to people around the world. You also send signals to foreign governments, right? And you have to, to leave room or give signals about what that might look like because we have to give them space to, to come back from the brink or put pressure on at the right time, but that has to be a key part of this as well. I, I really believe that. Marie and Jared, I'm going to direct this, direct you both and Mike to drink come along with the ride. Uh, another act expert. <laughs> there it is. Uh, and, and that's the important thing. Like neither of us are. Um, but I want to bring another actor onto the stage in this conversation and conversation. That's China. Jared, you mentioned them earlier. Uh, and prior to you both coming on, it's something I had talked about too of. It felt as though China has been a little like the Homer Simpson meme, where you kind of come out of the you know bush and then kind of recede back. Um, in the fact that Putin may, it, just again, from an outsider's perspective, that the global reaction to the invasion of Ukraine didn't land the way he imagined. And I wonder specifically out of Beijing, is there been a reticence that perhaps, again, speculation, obviously, that maybe Putin assumed more support would have come from China and that's become muted all of a sudden for one reason or the other? And Jared, just from a historical perspective, I want to ask you to sort of share on that. And then Marie, just from obviously your background in the State Department, is, is there any reality to this assertion that a journalism you know, major from Rutgers University who co-hosts the podcast happens to be openly asking? Jared, to you first. Yeah, sure. So, you know, the funny thing about the relationship between Russia and China is I think that most people often assume that they have this wonderful relationship, right? They've traditionally had a very tenuous relationship in many, many different regards. Um, so, for example, if you look at um, some of the things that the Chinese are saying right now, or the Chinese government more specifically is saying, is look, on one hand, they're not even acknowledging the invasion, right? They're not necessarily even coming out and using that word, right? Because they want to, again, sort of stay buddy-buddy with the Russians, right? But at the same time, they are absolutely condemning all of the different, um, you know, uh, tactics that the Russians have been using, especially recently, like even in the last few hours, you know, with the Russians targeting specifically civilians um, in many of their attacks, which I can almost guarantee you're going to start to see more of in the, in the, ne in the next few days. So again, like, you know, you guys use the word speculation. Um, I mean, I'll speculate as well. I mean, look. We, we've always known that the Chinese have had interests in Taiwan and reclaiming Taiwan. We, we know that they've had always had interests in putting more pressure on Hong Kong. My best guess as a historian is the Chinese are going to wait to see how this sort of plays out, right? And in a lot of ways, the Russians did the same thing. Though I don't know, I'd be curious, Marie, to hear what your thoughts are, because again, I'm a layman, I'm a teacher, you know, you worked for the government, but to me, Look, there has to be a correlation, or at least it seems there's a correlation between the fact that if you look back at 2014, is it really that much of a surprise that, and again, I'm not saying we should have got more involved in Syria, but we clearly um, uh, did not uh, go after Assad necessarily in the way that we claimed we would, you know, if he, you know, broke certain rules and crossed the quote unquote red line. And it, I mean, to me, it's not necessarily a surprise that almost immediately after the, you know, the Crimea is annexed. And again, same thing here, where whether it was the right or wrong move, you know, the United States pulling out of um, Afghanistan and everything happening in Kabul, 
um, again, like, is it is it that much of a coincidence that the Russians then decided to move, you know, against the Ukraine itself? And then again, you know, even earlier, earlier, we brought up the fact that the Russians came after us in 2016 and meddled with our election. They clearly would rather have had Donald Trump in office than than uh, Hillary Clinton. Right. So to me, it's a correlation. But again, I mean, these this is the speculation. So, Marie, I think you would probably be the best person to kind of build on build on the, these points. Well, that thank you. I that I feel like I have a, a large uh, 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 bar to live up to now. No pressure. I uh, no pressure. Right. Uh, so I think a couple of things. I think first, um, we in the United States often think that other countries do or don't do things because of what we do or don't do, and I think that's true to some extent. But I think. Um, I think Putin had been planning something like this for quite some time. And so something like Kabul and Afghanistan, like probably influenced him. But like, I think this has been his goal all along. Um, but I think more broadly, um, well, also side point, we should have done more in Syria and we should have done it in like 2011 and 2012. I think by the time we got to the second term of the Obama years, when I was the State Department, um, it was much more difficult. That's a whole other segment or, you know, show you could do. But when it comes to China, you know, I think that the key difference here is that China, I think, again, speculation, believes that the international system, as it's set up now, is to its benefit to be a part of that, right? Economically, diplomatically, I think it believes that it can continue rising and, and prospering within the international system as it stands now. Whereas Putin is like giving the finger to the international system, right? And so I actually think China, um, hopefully, I don't know, hopefully if I should say that, I think China probably looks at this and is like, we're not like those bad guys, you know, we're not, we're not those thugs and, and, you know, we're part of the system. We are part of it. We want, we want to be good citizens. Um, now we can all debate the Uyghurs, we can't actually debate the Uyghurs. There are all these things we can name that make them not 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 the good guys, um, certainly. But I, I, if 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 China takes a lesson from this, I think they will also see that it took something so egregious to get this reaction from the world, and that there's a lot of things short of this, some of which they've already done when it comes to Taiwan or Hong Kong, that they can continue to do to exert their influence that would not get this response. And I think that's probably a lesson they're learning as well. So if that keeps them from doing some of their, this more egregious things, then, then, then okay. Um, but I think they see themselves as having a, a leadership role in the new world order, whereas Russia like hates the new world order, right? They want to get rid of it. Um, and that's, I think, I think it will, we will see, there's also countries like India I mean, why India, the UAE, they're weird. You know, Israel has a relationship with Russia. There are, there are countries we need to hear from, um, some of whom we haven't heard enough from, I would say, yet. I, uh, we recently had award-winning journalist Amy McKinnon from Foreign Policy on the program. She, this was three weeks ago, and she was about to travel to the region, uh, to Kiev specifically. And I asked her, when you come back in a couple of weeks, what will the media coverage look like? What will be unfolding within the region? This was at the time when Russia was amassing troops. And she said, you know, one of the things about Vladimir Putin is he's not 10 feet tall and nobody knows what he's going to do. But I fear for my friends and colleagues that are working in the region, because I do feel that there will be an invasion and that will be part of the coverage. 
I turn to both of you as people listen to this in perpetuity uh, down the line, whether they're listening to it tomorrow or, or a year from now, how does this all end? Because unfortunately here in the States, I think we love finality, right? I'm still mad about the Sopranos finale. Everybody is. And, and I think I was, I, I, I was fine with it. You got to let <laughs> yeah. it go, Mike. And I, I knew, well, well, well we, can, we can argue about that offline, but um, I think about something like that. There's no putting this genie back in the bottle, right? So how does this all shake out? Jan, I want to turn to you first because you're teaching history, right? Does this end in a diplomatic solution? We talked about at the top of the program and, and so far in this conversation about peace talks, I'm using air quotes, in Belarus between Ukrainian officials and Russian officials. Does it end with a surrender? And Russia controlling more of Ukraine. And what does that look like now that they've sent bombs to residential areas in Kharkiv and Kiev specifically? So to both of you, Jared, you first, where do you see this finally ending up? What does this look like months from now? Well, it's, it's, it's I mean, it's pretty hard to predict. That said, um, it's going to be very different, very difficult, I should say, for the Ukrainians to hold their cities. Um you know, over the next couple of weeks, the thing you have to remember about the Russian military, I've been comparing the Russian military to a sledgehammer, whereas the U.S. military is more of a scalpel. The thing is, though, the Russian military is trying to act like a scalpel. That's why they're not doing particularly well right now. They're not good at the things that they're trying to do. So if I had to make a guess, they're going to resort to the things that typically the Russian military has always sort of resorted to brute force. Um, the second that that Western border is closed or the second that that weapons aren't coming into the country anymore, um, it's going to be very, very, very difficult to keep the, you know, the Russian military out of these cities. Now, um, again, looking at wars over the last, you know, 20 or 30 years, um, I mean, anything could happen. There could certainly be an insurgency in the Ukraine, which would be, uh, a, a very bad thing for a lot of people, but specifically for the for the Russian military. We learned that lesson in Iraq. We learned that lesson in Afghanistan. Here's another thing to consider, and I'm glad you asked this question, Mike, because I want to circle back to the idea of propaganda. And you had said earlier, or you had asked, um, how is the Russian populace sort of you know handling this? There are enormous protests going on in Russia right now. Um, I've looked at a few different polls. There are some polls that say 50 to 60% of Russian people want nothing to do with this war. Um, and I think somewhere around 6,000 people have already been arrested. The thing about war since Vietnam, it doesn't matter if you're a democracy, it doesn't matter if you're uh, an authoritarian state. Vladimir Putin needs the populace on his side. The more protests that there are, the longer that this war goes on, the longer that those sanctions start to impact the pockets of all his buddies, all of that will spell difficulties for the Russian state to move forward. So even if the Ukraine falls, um, if all of that dissent continues right um, in uh, Russia domestically, Putin is going to have a very big decision to make, right? I guess I'll phrase, phrase it as a question. I mean, is he bold enough to actually attack a place like Poland? Is he bold enough to actually attack um, Romania? Or, or again, any, any nation in which there will be uh, an escalation of the conflict, right? I would hope that he's not bold enough. Um, I would assume 
that what Putin would do is he would start to put pressure on some of those countries in the same way that he put pressure on us in 2016. Um, those are those are really uh, you know a lot of my best guesses um, in terms of in terms of where we're headed. And look, ultimately, um, this is something that I've been telling my students, and I would hope uh, I can you know get across to you know viewers. I mean. I, we want peace, obviously, right? I mean, the way in which we're talking about this, God only knows what it's like to be a Ukrainian um, citizen in any one of those cities right now, right? I mean, you have everyday people picking up guns to to try to de defend their cities. So look, I I'm pretty cynical when it comes to these quote unquote peace overtures. I mean, in reality, there's probably just stalling time so that the Russians could get reinforcements and resupplies into the country. But, um, you know, we all have to sort of cross our fingers and you know what, maybe not be that superstitious, like rely on diplomacy, right? War is a tool, right? That states use and let's not kid ourselves, right? We in the United States have done this as well, right? So, I mean, if you go all the way back, you know, to 2003, you know, Dick Cheney and company, you know, blacking out documents, you know, uh, making all sorts of claims about, uh, you know, about the Iraqi government being connected to Al Qaeda. This, none of this is new. So to me, what it comes down to is diplomacy. Um, and I'm hoping that uh, diplomacy will prevail in the end. Um, and if not, maybe, uh, you know, uh, whether it's in the United States or the EU, might have to take a firmer stance against Vladimir Putin, maybe more firm than 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 uh, you know that's being taken now. Marie, I do agree that it's hard to predict, but I there are a few things I think I feel confident-ish saying. Um, first, I think that Europe is more unified than they may have been in. I mean, than they certainly have been in decades. Um, that we have seen a post World War II, post Cold War architecture, post 9-11, right? All of the posts, um, Europe has come into its own during this conflict. You have countries like Switzerland, um, Finland, Sweden, Germany, making huge cataclysmic, did I say that right? Cataclysmic, huge cataclysmic. Uh, <laughs> you got it policy shifts in the matter of days, right? There are decades where it feels like nothing big in the world happens and then it feels like the world changes overnight. That's the period of time we're living through. So I think Europe has changed fundamentally. I think Ukraine has been pushed even further towards Europe. I mean, they're, they're trying to get into the EU. We don't know if they'll be able to, but you know, any question about whether Ukraine wanted to be free and sovereign and part of the West, I think has been answered. And the thing that Putin wanted to get rid of, Ukrainian nationalism, he only managed to make burn so brightly, right? I mean, he has he has done more than maybe anyone to uh, ignite the sense of nationalism in the Ukrainian people. And I think that is that does not go away. He cannot extinguish that. In fact, he's done the opposite. Uh, I think those things are true. I think that the Russian military can undertake a really brutal slog uh, of violence through Ukraine. And I think they will be met for however long they continue to do that with an insurgency. And, you know, we certainly fought an insurgency and, and saw that you can't really win. Russia has too, many times. Um, those aren't winnable military conflicts. So I think those are things I feel fairly confident saying. Um, the question, you know, the question I have is what Putin really wants and will accept. 
Um, you know, it was it was always a fig leaf to promise no NATO. That was not what Putin, right? That's not what he wanted. And, and I obviously agree about the power of diplomacy. Um, diplomacy backed up by a whole lot of force, economic, military, diplomatic. We are finally hitting Putin, I think, where it really, really, really hurts. And, and you know, this promise of the fall of the Soviet Union, which was very quickly proven, you know, was not going to be <laughs> this democratic blossoming and economic opening that, that we thought in, in, in what then became Russia. Um, it feels like I also feel fairly confident saying that as long as Vladimir Putin is in power, um, Russia, Russian people, the Russian economy will not come anywhere close to meeting their full potential. It will be a country stagnant, worse than stagnant. And I think for the Russian people, that is, um, you know, the latest in a very long line of tragedies that have befallen them. And, and, and that I also feel fairly, fairly confident saying. And, and the open question is what Putin will take. I think the Ukrainians will, and the West and the world will exact, exact costs on him. And whether there's anyone, anyone close to him, they can tell him this whether there are generals, whether there are oligarchs, whether there are people who can say you have to pull back and you have to do it, you will do it in a way that you can spin to your, whoever you need to spin it to. Those are the unknown questions that, that, will, that will determine a lot of, of these outcomes here. I think it's smart of the Ukrainians to go to the negotiating table. I think it's smart of them to be there. Um, I think the first step has to be some sort of ceasefire, cessation of hostilities. I don't even know if we can get that. So those that's sitting here today, you know, the beginning of you know, early March. Um, that's what I feel feel confident saying right now. Well, listen. Point. Yeah, go ahead, Jack. I just one more point, because I've just been thinking about this, um, you know, as we've been talking. Uh, I just wanted to highlight the importance of information. You know, we've all brought it up in different ways. One of the things that Vladimir Putin is a master of is he's a master of taking kernels of truth and exaggerating it um, in order to justify his reasoning for doing things. So if you look at what's happening in the Ukraine right now, what he's done um, is he's taken things from Russian history. So, for example, the fear of the West, uh, the fear of not having a buffer zone between France and Germany and, you know, the Russian state. So like playing on fears that Russian people have, all of these neo-Nazi claims, which date back to World War II, right? When, you, when many Ukrainians, uh, because of what Joseph Stalin had done to them, basically supported, you know, the Germans. He, what Putin does is he takes those things and exaggerates them to the point of being complete and total lies, right? So information is going to be so important in terms of everything that we're talking about right now, that's why it's a really brilliant move what the government, what the U.S. government is doing, right? Every time he comes up with these reasonings, so for example, if he takes the Ukraine and he starts making up all these lies about Poland, let's say, or Romania or whatever country he decides to sort of zero in on, the more that we can disprove those things, the more, hopefully, Russian people will be able to access that information and continue to protest the way that they've been doing. And again, um, just to draw a parallel, look at, the, you know, the Vietnam War, look at the Iraq War, um, whether you agreed with those conflicts or not, people, regular people can have a lot of power if they open their mouths and speak truth. Um, so I just wanted to make sure I got that point in. 
Really great and a great ending. Uh, I can't thank both of you enough for coming on the program, continuing to educate our audience about this. Obviously, this, our hearts uh, and thoughts and prayers are going out to all the Ukrainian people, ones that are still there fighting uh, to maintain control, ones that have fled to other parts of Europe or, or the Western nations. Our, our thoughts are with all of you guys. Marie Harf, a former State Department spokesperson and, and advisor to Secretary Kerry and a Fox News contributor. Check out Marie. Uh, giving the good stuff on Fox News, as me and Nick like to say, uh, and history professor over at the Hackley School, Jared Fishman. Jared, your students are are really lucky, and I'm proud of you, buddy. You know, you know that. I always tell you that. So, thank you to both of you for coming on the podcast. Continued success to both of you. Thank you right. so much. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. This episode of the Can We Please Talk podcast is presented by Bones Coffee, the official presenting sponsor of the Can We Please Talk podcast, Nick. Now we've had the coffee, all right? Before, we, we lied. We lied. We didn't have the coffee. We thought it was good. Now we've had it. It's delicious as hell. But tell the people why they should be ordering Bones Coffee. I'm going to keep this short because I, you all know I'm a coffee nerd. Uh, let me put you like this. It's smooth and delicious. Yeah. And flavorful. Like you can, one of those three often falls apart when we talk, when you talk about coffee. Folks, my style is... I grind beans the moment of, got the hot water going, French press. Mike's got one now because I refuse to let him live that Keurig life anymore. Although the Keurig version of Bones is legit. It's amazing. It's They, they translate really well. But freshly ground coffee, what Bones is doing with their flavors and their single origin coffees are amazing. And their shipping is fantastic. It gets there quickly. But most importantly, folks, it's great coffee at a great price but the price gets a little better. Why is that, Mike? That's right, because if you go to BonesCoffee.com right now, and they've been featured everywhere from Forbes, Women's Health, to Hello Giggles, they have all of this fantastic coffee, 12 ounce bags, sample packs, single serve, K-cups like Nick mentioned. I offered, I ordered, excuse me, the Cinnabon, Sin, S-I-N-N, so a clever play on words there. And I'm telling you, this coffee in the K-cup machine smells delicious and it tastes good. I am not BSing you when I say this. You go to BonesCoffee.com right now. You order whatever you want. They got gears. They got mugs, apparel, tote bags, hats, in addition to fantastic coffee like Nick just mentioned. And then at checkout, little promo code box, type in, can we please talk? All one word. You're going to get 15% off your first order just like that. Head to BonesCoffee.com right now. Our thanks to the panel there. Um, you know, both of them really summed it up. I thought Jared did a great job there in terms of uh, talking about Putin. Putin does this. You know, I, I encourage people to, if you want to go back and kind of trace the steps of the episode we did with Amy McKinnon from Foreign Policy about the lead up to this, right? And like what, what this is all about. And she did a great job as somebody who speaks the language, who has been in the region a bunch, and she does great work at foreignpolicy.com. I can't, I can't shout Amy McKinnon out enough. I was texting with her, you know, just to make sure she was safe. But the, she saw it. She's like, this is going to happen because nobody knows what this guy is capable of. People have warned about this for years. Uh, we saw glimpses of it in 2013, 14, like Marie just mentioned there about what the, you know, the State Department was looking at during the Obama administration. And now the consequences of all of it, right? The election process here in the States, all the trickle down that 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 Putin's uh the poisonous tree has kind of, 
you know, sent out all this bad fruit. And now we're seeing, you know, a helpless nation, maybe, maybe helpless in Ukraine, although we're trying to send as much help as possible without sending actual human beings to, to help out in this fight and, and, and set off a, a global war. Um, just real quick, Nick, you know, but before we sign off here, like thoughts on, on, on the panel and, and a lasting thought about this conflict. Yeah. I mean, first, it was the first time we've done, you know, we've talked to two people at the same time and shout out to you, man. Like you just quarterbacked it behind the scenes. It was, it was a great conversation. I think it was a good mix of, I think it's just great to be able to talk to someone who historically can take us through how we got here. But then on the other side, from a government standpoint, take us through the technical side of what's actually happening. Cause in both cases, they're dispelling the disinformation that we see often play through social media and as we talked about before, unlike some journalists that tend to you know, focus on the color of people's skins as it relates to the level of atrocity, how they want to measure it, uh, this was just about the facts and, and interpretation from the expertise of the people they were on. So just credit to the two of them and, and to you. Uh, no, I, the takeaways are that you know we're obviously in interesting times, but I think something that Marie brought up is that we're seeing potentially just a different just version or a de-evolution or evolution, I don't know, of of Vladimir Putin and you know what to Jared's point the reaction globally is just different than I think Putin had mentioned um but there is the reality that we're very early in this invasion we don't know early on like if we we're analyzing this from a boxing standpoint this actually seems to be leaning toward the Ukrainians right but we're only 8 days in and we're talking about Russia with a larger army that I don't know where this bodes, but the early returns are telling me that this isn't going the way it was planned. Yeah. Listen, in our show notes, there's ways to actually donate to, to the humanitarian crisis that's happening in the Ukraine. Uh, so you can check out those show note link, uh, show notes links and, and help donate as best as possible to the people of Ukraine. Our thoughts are with you guys. Uh, we thank each and every one of you for listening. Audio podcast platforms, you know them by now. Video of this entire interview will be available on YouTube.com. Check out our YouTube channel. And shout out to Acast, our hosting platform for always hosting us. As always, I am Mike Leon. On the subject of donations, folks, World Central Kitchen, work of Chef Jose Andreas and amazing other cooks doing stuff in Ukraine on the bordering areas. Um, Food and shelter is available. So donate when you can. I'm Nick Saveri. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.